Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and this is Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. This week, I speak to the phenomenal Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. Like, I learned in psychology that, you know, there's this thing called attachment, where we're actually born... We're born to be loved and we're pre-wired to love as well, to look for love. Yeah. And like, I, I like to use this analogy that like you've got like a little hole in your belly when you're born and it's your parents' job through consistency and love and care to like put a light inside of you. And whether it's one parent or two, they give you through the love and the consistency and the food. I always say the food because the food's important. They give you a light. you never had that. No. And then that light is what guides you. And at age five in school, I didn't have a light in there. It was very dark. And Miss Arkinson was that first person to put a light in me. And I I tell my story and I tell the story of her because I want teachers to know like they that they change lives. Mm. Like I'm so grateful that she changed my life. Like that last has lasted me my whole life, what she did for me. Katrina lives in Blanchardstown in Dublin is married to Dave and has three boys. John, who's 30, Sean, who's 18, and Tyg, who's 15. And she's also a proud grandmother. She's a senior lecturer in Maynooth University in the Department of Psychology and is the author of best-selling memoir, Poor. Katrina's childhood growing up in Coventry was often chaotic. As one of five to Irish parents living in a home shaped by heroin addiction, She experienced extreme trauma from an early age, which included being raped as a seven-year-old and being pregnant and homeless as a teenager. In this conversation, she speaks about the extreme neglect she experienced in childhood, the people who were a positive force in her life, the importance of opportunities and education and the power of healing. It's an eye-opening and challenging conversation at times, so please make sure you read the show notes in advance of listening. Here it is. Thank you so much for making time to sit down and have this conversation. Like a lot of people, I've been, you know, watching from the sidelines, listening to you speak, 
hearing about your story, your experiences in life and just thinking, wow, that is incredible stuff. Um, I love the fact that you have turned your life around in such a radical way and you're doing such amazing things and you're a beacon of hope and inspiration for so many people. So it's a privilege to sit in front of you and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I actually feel the same way sitting in front of you. So it's really, really lovely to be here and to hear them things. It's funny, you don't live your life in that awareness. Like I'm just getting on with my my life. So when people say things like that, you're like, oh yeah, this is amazing what I'm doing. But you don't always live in the knowledge that that's that's inspiring to other people. It's just, you know, I'm getting on doing what I usually do. Yeah, sure. (laughs) I can can imagine. And you're you're a mom, you're trying to rear your kids and uh, you're busy and you're doing, you're juggling away like a lot of people are. But I suppose when you take moments maybe to step back from it and go, yeah, it is something like it. It's true. I think I think every day I have a moment where I stop and go, wow, wow, look at how amazing my life is in comparison to what it was. So like and I I actively practice that actually. Like I am conscious of being grateful. So like but there isn't a day where I don't personally go wow, look at my life. This is amazing. Really? Which is a lovely way to kind of, um, and sometimes I'm reminded in negative ways as well. You know, I can see like homelessness or addiction or, or, or harshness or people struggling. And then I'm reminded that I was there. And, Mm. but most days I do get a moment where I'm like, this is, I feel really blessed. I feel really grateful for the life that I have, but I'm not walking around going, you know, I'm an inspiration. <laughs> I'm just kind of getting on with it. And then, but I do get a lot of people stop me obviously now, which is really nice and chat to me and share their stories, which is such a honor actually to hear people and to learn where they're from. It's amazing. They open up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Because you share so much of what you went through, I suppose people then feel a connection and, and that sense of, oh, well, I can open up to her too, because she's shared so much of her life yeah. with me through the pages of your book. Yeah. It's mad because when you, when people say that to me about being so open, sharing so much of myself, I don't actually know how to be any different to that. Like it, it's just who I am at the end of the day like and actually like how I grew up we were all kind of like that just outward like Mm. you know what you see is what you get what you see is what you get if you do something I'll tell you if I'm gonna fight with you I'm gonna fight with you I love you I'm gonna say it and so which is refreshing yeah but and it's rare probably is quite rare especially here in Ireland I think it's quite you know we're a little bit more inwards with ourselves absolutely and I think uh, culturally we're quite people pleasing yes. as a nation yes. and not wanting to offend yeah. or say something that might upset the apple cart. So to have a personality type who is just like, this is me, yeah. warts not, take it or leave it. That's, yeah. that's, it's a good way to be. And, and to be honest, like I, I have spent a lot, I did spend a lot of time, especially when I first got into Trinity and I first began and my education, trying to be somebody different. And okay. I just know the pain of that. Like I don't, I want to live unauthentic life and just be myself like fundamentally I it hurts me to try to be different so like I am outward in terms of how I feel and I I share who I am and um I kind of like that about myself like I think like I think that it's a gift of mine um not everybody likes it I'm sure my husband gets sick of it sometimes (laughs) when I'm telling him what he's done or whatever expressing it but he always says like love you're the light 
Mm. You know, you bring the light at the end of the day with that part of you. So, yeah, so I've just always been that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're saying there you feel very lucky uh, and grateful for all that you have come through and achieved in life. But I suppose we need to also acknowledge that it didn't happen just by clicking your fingers. No. You put a lot of work in. Yeah. And I was helped a lot. Sometimes I worry when we talk about that because like I, I never want, I never, when it came to telling my story so publicly, especially with the book Poor, I didn't ever want to shame anybody else because yeah. sometimes like I really genuinely am not that unique in terms of where I come from. Like there's lots of girls who are like me, who were bright and capable and had potential. I just really was lucky in some of the moments in my life that I was able to, either I was either offered opportunities and was able to engage with them or was actually dragged along to them. So I had great people along the way who actually didn't let me fail okay. when I really wanted to. So I, I'm really mindful because when we say like you, you took the chance or you did the work, it's, it kind of, I always flip it and think, well, it doesn't mean that someone else isn't doing the work. Sometimes we can't do the work. And also like, don't get me wrong. It was hard work. Like I worked really hard, but like there was a time in my life where I was homeless with a baby and it was hard. It was equally as hard work to get out of bed then Mm. as it was like I worked really hard then to actually survive and there's some people who are just working hard to survive and and then like uh, it doesn't mean that they're not you know that that level of work is not being applied to becoming what I've become it just means all their energy is being focused on that particular thing and like I've learned through psychology which is what I'm a specialist in but also my own journey that there are there are, most people want to live a great life. Most people want to succeed. I believe like if people knew what it was like to be in my life, to have the, the gift of education and really good employment and that they would, they would want that too. It's not like people choose not to have them things. It's like some other things drive us. And I know in my life, especially when I've made bad decisions and done bad things. Like I really wanted to be good, but there was other things that drove me, Mm. things that I had no control over and I needed to kind of get help with. And luckily I've been able to get that help and avail of it. Now, don't get me wrong. I worked really, really hard, Mm. but other people work really, really hard and they don't get to where I am. And I think that's to do with the system more so than their own capabilities. Yeah. We'll probably get back to this actually later on in the conversation. At this point, what I really want to do is is kind of for you to perhaps really take us through the book. So there'll be people listening who will have read it, um, people who, you know, after this conversation will run out and buy it. But I suppose to get a sense of what normal was like for you growing up, Mm. can we go back to, um, you know, Katrina as a kid? Yeah. And what life was like? Yeah, so I grew up in my earliest memories are of absolute chaos. So my parents were drug addicts, heroin addicts, uh, intravenous drug users. And so what that meant was like my childhood was completely chaotic. Um, And I mean, in poverty terms, like this, I always like to use the phrase, like you have the poor, poor and kind of the rich, poor. So I lived in a council estate where all the poor people kind of corralled together in in low opportunity environments. But like 
some of us were, some of us, my neighbours and ourselves were working poor, like had shitty jobs. Can I swear? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, shitty jobs. And, you know, they were serving people and doing the best they could. And then there was the poor, poor, which was us. Social welfare dependent, crime and addiction and violence. And that was my life and my childhood. So on any given day, I wouldn't have food. There was squalor. Uh, drunkenness, violence, witnessing my parents doing everything they could for their addiction. And so, yeah, it was a, a really horrific experience to grow up in that in that life. Now, alongside that as well, there was loads of fun as well. Like, I mean, the community that I come from, there was loads of, you know, music and happiness and there was loads of parties. There was loads of great things, but inherently... My childhood, especially my early childhood between the ages of zero and 10, for example, were just witnessing absolute carnage from my parents, which was their heroin addiction. And me just being this terrified, vulnerable little girl who, like most little girls, was full of potential and vivacious and loved music and all them things, but was just not loved in the way that she deserved and cared for in the way that she deserved to be. And obviously now at this point in your life and you've had a lot of therapy, you've done a huge amount of work on going back through your experiences um, and I suppose almost going back to that little girl and, you know, letting her know that she matters. Yeah, I think I've spent my lifetime trying to return to seven-year-old me because I think that's when... Like I really lost hope as a little girl. I think if, as a as a child, like in order to cope, I think with everything that was going on, I had a lot of fantasy that my parents love me and that um, everything would be fine, and eventually they would act like the other parents that I would see, the other the other mammies. And then at age seven, I experienced significant uh, abuse as a child and I completely cut off and all hope, I suppose, was gone. Like that brightness that's in my spirit naturally, even now, it was gone. It was like the world is just this dark place and nobody's to be trusted. That was like literally how it was in my DNA to feel like that, not even just in in my mind, but actually in my whole response to the world. And I think... I've spent a lifetime trying to return to her, to comfort her and to like heal her. And I, in the healing and the search for her, I often looked in the wrong places to try to make her feel better or feel safe. Um, And I'm lucky now that I, I feel like now I'm, I'm there. Like I, I've been able to kind of like soothe myself and say, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, which would, would would have been a strong thought in my mind that it was something to do with me and um, you are safe. And so, like, I feel really privileged to have come to that point where I can heal myself and I can love myself yeah. as I was then. But it's still, I suppose the reason I wrote my book is I, I wanted people to understand a couple of things. Firstly, like my parents didn't choose to be bad parents. Like they were ill. Like addiction is an illness. Like, like I'm sure my mom, when she gave birth to me, she wanted to be a good mother. Like I wanted to be a good mother, like everybody does. But like she had this illness that dominated her. So I wanted to contextualize that in some ways and for people to remember her differently than, than what addiction makes you think people are. 
but also I wanted to talk about how it puts you at risk of loads of things. So like having no opportunities doesn't just my how you feel about yourself, but it's it stops you like being able to perform in school and it stops you being able, it makes you vulnerable to abuse and it makes you vulnerable to like being unable to have relationships, good relationships in adulthood and divorce and addiction and mental health difficulties. And I really wanted to explain that, that, you know, that seven-year-old and what she experienced actually, you know, tendrils came out from her to all the way through to my adult life. And I suppose like it was really important to me to talk about Mm. the consequences of poverty and how it really impacts upon your whole life and how you feel about yourself. And also, I suppose, by writing the book, you're educating those of us who don't have the experience, I suppose, of growing up in that environment. Yeah, exactly. And experiencing poverty the way you did. Like I purposely wrote from the point of a child in my book. And I know there like there are some really gruesome details in my story because I wanted to actually be honest, Mm. like poverty and and trauma and addiction are gruesome. Like my home had no carpet. There was no food. There was violence. There was the police kicking in the door. I went to prisons to visit my father. I watched my dad overdose like these things are gruesome. And I, I, I write about them right very vividly on, on purpose, but I write them from the viewpoint of a child so someone can understand and be a bit more compassionate about children who come from that life. Because yeah. often we look at like delinquent teenagers or lone parents or people in flats and think they've wasted their life. They've made bad choices. But actually, if you track back Mm. to that seven-year-old or five-year-old kid, you can just feel maybe they had a hard time and they didn't have any other choice at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's my story, that I didn't have a choice realistically uh, at very young. And that lack of choice meant that I ended up in really dark places. But then I suppose breaking the cycle in adulthood means that you've broken that cycle then for your own kids. Yes. Which is really powerful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like my, my middle boy, Sean, he's 18, Sean, like Sean started university three weeks ago, four, maybe five weeks ago now. Hmm. Like he, you know, he didn't need an access course or like he went straight in and not, not that that's an example of success, but like he's the first one in our family to finish school at the end of the day to do his leaving. So like, you know, we never had that. So like Cycles are breaking massively for us and my family because of what's happened to me and what's happened in my life. And it's amazing. It is amazing. Like it makes me feel so proud that I have been able to like really change the future of the O'Sullivan family. Yeah. The O'Sullivan Brennan. I can't ignore my husband's (laughs) name as well, but like change the future of us. Yeah. In, in, and that's such a privilege. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. Um, I know that we've had a few messages back and forth and I know you're mindful of the listener and mm. also, you know, you're mindful of yourself and I'm mindful of you also. So I I, I certainly am not going to get you to revisit um, experiences that you don't want to talk about. But I suppose just for the listener to understand what you're referencing at seven in the book, you are, as you said, you, you don't hold back. Um, and there was never really a feeling at home that you were safe and you experienced sexual abuse in uh its most dramatic form at, mm. at the age of seven. 
And again, I'm not getting you to revisit this conversation because I want to um, demonize your mother, but I think it's just terribly sad, the interaction you had. Do you Mm. mind if we talk about that? No, no, not at all. I mean, it's in the book. So, um, yeah, I experienced rape as a child. So, um, and the reason I, so when you, when you write your story, like when I made the decision to write my story, I was asked to write it. And I, I said to the publishers, I was very reticent. And then I said, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to be really honest. Mm. And that has to be okay because I've read brilliant biographies, but sometimes people skirt around hard things. And this particular story, um, what, you know, I was raped as a child by a family friend, someone we called our uncle, you know, my dad was in prison. My mom's addiction was really, really bad. And as a little girl, I mean, that completely broke me. Mm. I mean, I and and I know that like one in four adults in Ireland has experienced sexual abuse as a child. So I'm not on my own at the end of the day. And Which I, is very high. And, the, and yeah, it? it's one in five in the world, but one in five in Ireland. So one in four in Ireland. One in four in Ireland, yeah. And like we, so we, yeah. we you know, it, it's not, uh, Richie Sadler said a brilliant thing when he was on um, Tommy Tiernan. He says the abuser takes everything out of their own self that they feel and places it into the person they're abusing. So the abuser feels ashamed of themselves, disgusted of themselves, and they take all of that and they pop it into the person. And I completely related to that because I have nothing to feel ashamed of at the end of the day. And yet talking about abuse is shameful. There's a, it's like you're, you're marred or you're, you're tarnished. Now I was traumatized by that experience and it really affected how I felt about myself as a girl and a woman in my body, which it robbed me actually of my body. Like Mm -hmm. I tell a story of how prior to that, I, I was so free in terms of like, I'd no physical shame. I'd lots of shame around my family, but I'd know, like I'd do a cartwheel, my my skirt would go over my head. There'd be never any consequence or thought around what that meant. Sure. And then as soon as that happened, I became really aware of my body and what that is and what it was made for and not made for. And it was very, very damaging to how I felt about myself as a, as a, as a woman and a girl. But in terms of what happened with my mom, like as when I look back on myself then, like I was this little girl who knew even them right from wrong. And I think a lot of us know right from wrong. And I knew right from wrong. And I knew that you were supposed to tell when something bad happened, you were supposed to tell. And I told my mom, I vividly remember, you know, where it happened. And I said to her, you know, this, I was, you know, this, he raped me, I said. And my mom said, oh, he raped me too. And it's taken me and a lot, it was, I was really worried writing that because I love my mum. Like Mm. I love Tilly. Like my mum was a wonderful person. She had loads of great qualities. She wasn't a great mum because she was in addiction and she found it very difficult to love us um, and love me, prioritise me. She did love me. She didn't prioritise me. However, like as a person who's been through recovery myself and also been able to explore in detail, like that particular incident, because not only did the, this what happened re- break me, but then yeah. what my mom did, it added just it, it was over for me. But as an adult, I think my mom was sexually assaulted herself and experienced abuse herself. Her she was a prostitute, and her whole life, 
she'd been mistreated by men. And I, I, I genuinely think her response to me was just like, this is what happens to us. This is what happens to women like us. Mm. And while that's not right, and I, and I feel anger, I still feel anger that I wasn't cared for and I did the right thing. I also have this reflexive adult now around that, that thought that says, well, I can understand why my mom did that. It wasn't right. And she should have cared for me and I deserved better, but I understand it in some ways. It's amazing. You have such a huge capacity for compassion. And I know from everything I've I've read and heard you speak so, you know, fondly, not just of your mother, but of of your father also. Mm. And despite it, it the, the the overwhelming negatives, you can still see and appreciate that there was a lot of good there. And I suppose it was a repair that happened at different stages, particularly later on. Um, I think, though, with that, like, I want to be, like, I want to be afforded that too. Yeah. Uh, what I afford to my parents, I want to be afforded that too. Because there are times where I haven't been a perfect adult or a perfect person, or I've really done things that go against what's good and what's right. And so a part of me, like, being forgiving is part of like wanting forgiveness for myself but also don't get me wrong like there are days when I'm really angry like there are days where I'm like don't fucking mention him to me (laughs) excuse my language so like I don't live all the ways in like this you know it can fluctuate but Mm. in general I do have a, a good capacity for forgiveness now and I it is a choice because I I can understand, like, I have the privilege of being able to understand and think more rationally than emotionally now about, like, my my parents and who they were. Yeah. And they were complex. Like, they were great, like, great people. Like, my dad, like, he taught me to read when I was four. Like, he, you know, he gave me so much. Like, when I moved to Dublin, actually, and I was really broken myself, my dad was in recovery. My dad used to take me to the Gresham about like once a month or something for a, 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 um and he used to say you belong here because he knew I was really ashamed of myself of where I came from and the things I do and he'd, he'd make us have tea like afternoon tea and there'd be like silver pots and a little cup and he'd be like you belong here oh. you belong here like wow. he, he was trying what to like you? oh I was like 20 yeah but I was so like this was just this chavvy girl like who had no manners in some ways like and felt really less than and my dad would like we'd go and have afternoon tea in the Gresham because he was like he was in recovery at that point and trying to live a better life but he wanted to instill in me some difference some better so there was there was loads and my dad loved my children like he was an absolutely amazing grandfather, mm. which is really hard, actually, because telling my story like conflicts with that. Yeah, mm. it does, doesn't it? Mm. It does. Yeah, because he like a lot of your childhood, he wasn't even really present. Because no. if he was there, he might have been completely out of it. Yes. And yet he was so hands on then as, as a granddad. Yeah. Did that hurt you? No, or, no. no. not with my own kids. No, okay, no, no. I, I, I was, I think, though. I was a different person. Even at 20, I was a different person. Like I didn't have the the knowledge and awareness that I have now. And so there may have been reactions that I wasn't conscious of, but mm. like I just, I never gave myself permission as a younger person to be angry with my dad. There was like a very difficult, there was a fear in me of him not 
loving me mm, and like okay. so there was a definite power dynamic between us where I felt like I couldn't even say things if I did feel them with him so like but actually no like when I with John particularly he was just so loving now I know my siblings felt jealous okay <laughs> and they you know there was definitely some like oh my god he's doing all this great stuff now where were you 20 years ago yeah, at the okay. end of the day? So that's a regular conversation that would have yeah, been had. Yeah, yeah. But for me, my dad actually did a lot of trying to make amends yeah, okay. with me, especially yeah. when I was, you know, in Dublin and struggling. He was very good. And I know that both your parents have passed away. Mm. Um, your dad, did he pass away with throat cancer yeah, in the end? throat cancer, yeah. He died in, at age 56. I'm so I'm, I'm so sorry. And uh, yeah, young age mm. to die. Um at that point, had he, do you ever fully recover, get over the addiction? I, I don't think he had. No, like he, it's funny because when I originally came to Dublin, um, my dad was sober and I was just mesmerized by the fact that this man was now sober. Yeah. Because he was an absolute nightmare addict. Like he was so chaotic and so out of control. And then in Dublin, he'd moved home. And within a year or two, he'd gone to AA and he got sober. And so I remember coming to visit and just like not even knowing who he was, not recognizing him. But then, you know, when I moved here and I actually got sober myself and started on my own recovery journey in terms of like therapy, then I was like, oh, he still has his, he still had his addictive ways all the way through. And he still had, he hadn't fully made amends in some ways. He did in a lot of ways, but there was definite complexities and there was definite addiction. Like he was... He smoked himself to death, like literally, you know, smoked 60 cigarettes a day and still smoked cannabis and did all these other things. But he just didn't take the heavy drugs that he was taking before. Mm. And then your mom, she passed away a few years after that. Yeah. So my mom actually went back. My mom never really got sober or clean. She went to treatment. She did all the things. She just couldn't. She just couldn't do it. I actually think she was so ashamed of what she'd done as in like her kids like women are held to a much higher standard in terms of addiction than men and like so the mother a mother who is as an addict is much worse is viewed much worse and treated much worse and so I think she had that internalized as well so every time she woke up she just saw this mess that was ahead of her that was caused by her addiction in her children and I think that was way too much for her to cope with and so she'd go back okay. and she'd go back yeah but she ended up going back on heroin when she was um 50. so she went from heroin to alcoholism which is quite common and then when my dad died she actually went back onto heroin and died about three years later from oh, gotcha. uh, her liver failed yeah mm. that was really sad really sad yeah mm. It's such a waste of a life as well. I mean, I just feel sad that she never had any freedom. Like yeah. her whole life, there was no freedom. The only time that she was free was when she was completely out of her head. And that's not freedom No. at the end of the day because she chased that all the time. So I do feel really sad for, that she didn't get a chance to live. And yeah. it kind of some ways motivates me to to try to live a good life and to be conscious of being happy and present and loving my life because I don't I don't want to I don't want to die like she did no. I don't want to have regrets and I don't want to yeah but it is really sad yeah it is um, 
it's hard for me to even know what to say because it is just it's just the sadness of it. It's the uh, destruction. I know. And but this is the common I think the common thread is poverty and trauma. So like my mom grew up poor. Yeah. You know, she left school when she was 12 or 13. She was beaten by her dad and she had they had no money. There was a lot of trauma in her family. She experienced sexual assault at a young age. My dad, he was adopted. He was born here and he was adopted when he was five. So he had five years of floundering. Mm. Um, so there was trauma there. Like, you know, addiction and criminality and all them things, they don't just emerge out of nowhere. They are intergenerational. And we generally, if your mom is poor, you will be poor. That's what the research shows us. So, like, she didn't you know become that herself it was passed on through her experiences and then passed on to me through 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 my mom and dad and so like sometimes I think it's important to like even though it's it is really sad it's also important to learn from stories like mine and learn from my mom's experience and learn also that you can intervene like you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be your destiny at the end of the day. And there are things that the state and society can do to make sure that we empower women to to move out of poverty and therefore have better lives and then their children will have better lives. Mm. I think the the sad part, going back to what happened to me as a child, the, the, the sad part about that, the one of the hardest bits is... I have, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about my siblings, but like there was always a sense of we're in this together. So and when I experienced the abuse at age seven, now I only wrote, wrote I only write about one experience. There's actually more experiences in my childhood than that, because the vulnerability, like we were the vulnerable children. And so when you're vulnerable, there's lots of predators that will take advantage of you. But like what that robbed me of was connection to my siblings as well. It was so awful that I was no longer part of like in this, when I, what I write about and not to be too graphic was like my brother went to the shop, this incident happened. And when he came back, it was like, he was a completely different person. And I was a different person. Like it was like, I was transformed within this one incident from this connected kid to someone who just had no connection with anybody. Mm-hmm. And it was like I was in a little a little bubble on my own of fear and trauma. And it was awful what that robbed me of. Um, and you know what? I, I often think, how could I have been expected? You know, when I went to school and stuff and how could I have ex- been expected to just perform like everybody else when all that horrible stuff was happening to me? I, I really don't understand how society doesn't, you know, know more or understand more about what what happens to people like me and then how that affects us when we go to school or when we go to play centres or all that kind of thing. Yeah, and the next morning, I suppose you were expected to get up and go to school as normal. As normal, as normal. Yesterday, actually, um, after being on the late late on Friday, a girl, uh, I write about my next door neighbour um, so we grew up in Coventry and all of the families on our street it was a council estate, but all of our families on the street were migrants, basically. So like we were either Irish, Scottish, uh, Jamaican, Pakistani, Indian. 
on the road. Okay. I don't even know if there was any English people <laughs> who actually lived on our street, but my next door neighbor was an Irish family as well. And uh, there was this little girl that I used to play with. And she was the first, actually looking at her family was the first time I realized that my family w- wasn't normal. And I write about that in the book, like how I used to look at her mom making her soup and doing her hair and giving her a hug. And I was like, oh, why is my mom not like that? It was just like very basic. Like she, her mom's like this, my mom's not. But yesterday after the late late, I got a message from her and um, she said, I watched the late late and I cried she said, I cried because the memories of our childhood, but also the memories of looking away from your family, of seeing and knowing what was happening and looking away. Now, I cried so hard when I got that email because of the acknowledgement, actually, yeah. from her. But she was like, we should have done better. We all should have done better for you. Because even though we were all poor, we were the poorest. Like we were that family that yeah. like ev- the garden was overgrown and there was shouting and screaming. And now there was shouting and screaming and lots of gaffes, but it was probably behind closed doors after a few drinks. In ours, it was much more public. And she sent me this message to say, you know, we looked away. Now I sent back to her, I said, you were, you were a child. And she said, I know, but the adults looked away and just left you. And that sometimes is actually harder to process mm. than what happened to me it's more it's harder to process that you know good people or people in supports or systems actually allowed you know didn't intervene or or make it easier for for me yeah yeah and i suppose you didn't have that awareness as a kid but now again looking back you can see that there would have been people that noticed mm yeah, I think like I, I talk about school, you know, in my book yeah. and um, the wonderful teacher that I had when I first started school, she clearly saw and did everything she could mm. to make me feel special and and wonderful. And so mm. that Miss Arkinson, Miss Arkinson. Yeah. So she, um, you know, there were adults, obviously, that did see and did something and she in my primary school, actually, a lot of the teachers in that school did a lot to um, buffer what was happening at home. I know that they, you know, they made reports to social services and they did a lot of things to try to help us. But Miss Arkinson, I suppose, was one of them adults that restored faith for me in, in adults because she was just this light every day when I was really, you know, surrounded by darkness, I'd go into, you know, school and she was just like this, this Irish, she was Irish as well, which was great. And she said my name properly, which is even <laughs> better. You know, when people say Catriona, it still boils my blood. Yeah. <laughs> it's only English people. I was on Sky News and the report, the researcher said to me, um, and, and how do you pronounce your name? I said, Katrina, it's Katrina. And then the the news reporter was like, and Catriona. And I'm like, <laughs> Like, it's not hard. Your no, name not. is hard <laughs> at the end of the day. Like, style. Like, come on. But, like, it's very easy to say yeah, Katrina. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. she was Irish and she knew how to say my name, which kind of got me on side straight away. Straight away, yeah. But I remember, actually, there was a few things that she did that... I remember her telling me about where my name was from, um, you know, Osula Wine, and that was, like, profound to me that she'd gone and 
you know, it was like brilliant the way she re- she tried to reach me. Yeah. But she also like she used to, you know, send me to do jobs, which is really annoying when you're a school kid. And I was kind of I was bold, like I didn't want to sit still because I was traumatized. Like mm. and sitting still meant I was like worried about my mom and dad and what was happening at home. And she would uh, she'd send me to do jobs and I'd run out of school straight away. So she'd say, go down the hall and send this, take this to someone. And I'd run out to the playground because we had a big climbing frame in the playground and she'd find me there and bring me back in. And sometimes it'd be me and my brother together, she'd find. But she never stopped expecting me to be able to do what everybody else could do. She never like dumbed it down or like sat me away. Mm. She just kept on asking me. And like, I think when someone kind of continues to believe in you, even when you don't believe in yourself, or you feel worthless, like that can chip away at your own doubt. And that was so powerful. And then obviously she like taught me how to wash, Mm. you know, like I was the pissy kid, had knits, you know, I was really um, separate from the other kids because they didn't want to play with me. And she... Because your parents weren't able to show you how to do this basic stuff. No, we never had a towel. We never had toilet paper. I was slagging about this the other day because my friend voice noted me and she said, oh my God, I've been out with you all weekend. We've no toilet roll. I was like, I know what to do. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) We've been here before. And she's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I'll go to the shop at the end of the day. Yeah, TMI. But like we didn't have to. I know we're kind of saying, we're laughing about something that is at the time, like basic. Basics. Yeah. No toothbrushes. No soap, no, no. Like I, I basically piss the bed every night and then get up, roll out of bed myself, not change, put clothes on over the top and go into school. And my mum and dad, who knows where they were. And then you'd be smelly and no one would want to sit next to you and they'd call you names. And so I was, you know, ostracized at home and then not fitting in in school. That's awful, like for awful. a kid. But like, I mean, even with our own kids, yeah. like every, and the amount of people who've spoke to me about this, like when I've told this story, they've come up to me and said, oh my God, there was a kid like you. I was so mean to them. I wonder how they are now. Well, that's the thing. Kids can be so cruel. So cruel. But the parents can be as well. Mm. Like I, you know, like when, when a girl, I had knits all the time and I've really good hair, thick yeah, hair, yeah, yeah, never, they never went away. And so like, yeah, kids are mean though, mean and um but miss Harkinson, she she her and the teacher's assistant um they wanted this particular day they she, i remember the look at them looking at each other and i thought i was in trouble and then the teacher's assistant took me into the bathroom miss hall was her name and she kind of bent down and she says you've done nothing wrong she had a bag and she brought out this white fluffy towel and a white flannel and five pairs of knickers monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday written on them and she said every day I'm going to have this bag on the table and you're to come in here before school and this is how you wash yourself. And like, I felt so lovely, really ashamed in that moment. I already knew that I was the pissy kid. I already knew that my family were the bad family, but I appreciated the help. Okay, yeah. So because even though it was an incredibly kind thing to do, it was also mortifying for you. It was. I was ashamed, but also... 
she she hunkered down in front of me and looked me in the face and was like, you have done nothing wrong. Yeah. And like to hear that is lovely, mm. even though, you know, you're like, oh, because you want to defend your parents as well. You don't you want to you want to protect them. I knew that they weren't doing a good job. I knew that this is what this meant, even like very immaturely. I knew all that, but I wanted to protect them. But also I was so glad that somebody was seeing me and like helping yeah. me. Yeah. Like yeah. I needed to be helped. So like. That was great. And then Miss Arkinson would always bring in like clothes and, you know, old clothes. She'd be like, oh, I found this old dress. I'm sure she was out like buying shit for me. You know, I'll never forget this this blue velvet with a white collar dress that she gave me. It had little buttons down and I just felt so pretty in it. And uh, I wore it until it was too small. And I remember my mom gave it away to one of our friend's kids and I was fuming. It's yeah. like, that was my, even it didn't fit me anymore. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like I, I use this analogy, like I learned in psychology that, you know, there's this thing called attachment where we're actually born, we're born to be loved and we're pre-wired to love as well, to look for love. Yeah. And like, I, I like to use this analogy that like, you've got like a little hole in your belly when you're born and it's your parents' job through consistency and love and care to like, put a light inside of you and whether it's one parent or two they give you through the love and the consistency and the food I always say the food because the food's important they give you a light you never had that no and then that light is what guides you and at age five in school I didn't have a light in there it was very dark and Miss Arkinson was that first person to put a light in me and I mm. I tell my story and I tell the story of her because I want teachers to know like they that they change lives. Mm. Like I'm so grateful that she changed my life. Like that last has lasted me my whole life. What she did for me. Can you imagine? I don't know. You don't want to imagine because it was such a positive in your life. But had she not been there? Yeah, I can imagine because I can see it in siblings and I can see it in friends. Okay. The consequence when it isn't there. Yeah. And like I've had lo- I've had lots of messages from people who say I never had any of that in school. And the damage of having like the harsh experience in education. So I do, I can't imagine that, but I can't imagine it for me. I think the warmth that I I feel and I have definitely comes from that, like very early, a really positive experience with somebody in school. And um, like, I, I, I like to, I, I remember like, so our house was really crazy. <laughs> It was very scary and um, sometimes I'd be lying on my bunk bed and some of the crazy stuff would be going on and I'd be really terrified and like I'd be like grappling in my mind. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but when you're in a real stressed state or depressed state and I'd be grappling for like some hope or something and she would come to mind. She like even in the dark times in my childhood, I remember she thinks I'm something I can pop in. So all the way through nursery and then all the way through uh, primary school, I'd go to the nursery every every morning. Me and Darren, my brother, we went every morning to the nursery before school. Every single day we went in. She was there. She'd give us a bun. We'd have a drink and then we'd go over. So it wasn't just a year in your life. It lasted. All the way. Did she know? The impact she had on she you. She does know. Like, I, I've spoke to her. Like, I'm, I'm going to meet her soon. She's, she's here in Ireland. Oh, she's amazing. home. Yeah, she came home. I was meant to go two weeks ago, but I got a chest infection, so I couldn't go up. So I'm going to go. But she's, oh, my God. Like, she follows me on Facebook and 
she's just like exactly the same. She's like, I'm so proud of you. Mm. And her her nieces and her her family have been in touch. So her daughter is actually a, a principal of a school in England, and um, they they all message me and be like, Oh my god, thank you. What's weird is like other people who are in her class as well. They all are like, Oh, she was great to me, and I kind of feel a bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she was mine she was mine but I think she was great to everybody at the Aww. end of the day but yeah so we're in touch and it's it's amazing when was the last time you saw her oh when I was oh god probably I was about 10 that'll be powerful it will it? yeah it'll be really powerful yeah to go and see her wow. I'm a bit nervous about it too you know sometimes they say like don't meet your heroes <laughs> so like because yeah. You know, with teachers, like you don't really know what they're like. You just know what you know. Mm. It's a bit nerve wracking as well. I, I would imagine it's, it's nerve wracking for her too. But also I would imagine the sense of satisfaction she must feel knowing that, um, you know, she was such a positive force in your life. Yeah. And she must be really proud it's, yeah, she, of you and what you've done with your life. Oh, she is. And she's messaged me. And what's lovely as well is that she remembers so many details from my mm. childhood and from like about my siblings and like she's asked me questions. I'm like, oh my God, like she really knew me and she really knew, yeah. which is so lovely to actually be, um, to know that I, you know, and she was like, you were always so special. They were always so special, you know? And for me, I think of myself as being like this naughty, reactive little kid. Cause like, you could ask other teachers and they would say that's what I was. Like, but she could see beyond that behaviour and yeah, see you. Yeah. And I think that's so important in education is that we really try to see beyond how kids present themselves. Mm. Like no kid is going to come to class and be really naughty just for no reason at the end yeah, of the day. Of There's always a reason. And I think education is, a, is it's, it's our responsibility to actually try to reach people and adjust yeah. ourselves rather than asking them to adjust yeah. to us. Mm. Mm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
she wasn't the only teacher that ended up being a really positive influence in mm. your life, um, Mr. Pickering. Yeah. So he he was a different kind of story. So I was a teenager when I went into his class and I was all, then I love to say like Miss Pick Miss Hawkinson just loved me and then I just turned into this amazing kid. No, that's not what happened. Like what she did positively influenced me, but like I was this rebellious teenager, you know. But you still had the same home environment. Crazy. And like, you know, we used to, you know, like my parents would take you out robbing with them. Like it was really like really bad. It was like what you imagine. It's like what you see on Shameless is yeah, what yeah, happened yeah. in our house. Like it's real, that. And so like, but when I went into secondary and school. And what are you talking about? Like going into a shop? Shoplifting. Or my dad did credit cards and he'd bring me with him as a cover. Right. Or there was a friends of ours used to go like, that was their job to shoplift. Like actually their job. Okay. So they come and I know. Shouldn't laugh. I know, but, like, but it was. There was yeah. And so like sometimes they asked my dad or my mom, could they take me? Because I was a good decoy, like having a child with Having them. a cute kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then like when I got older, it was like robbing cars or being with a gang that robbed cars. I always wanted to go out with the coolest boy and he had to be the baddest boy because that's how I felt about myself and mm. what I deserved. But I mean, I know a lot of women can identify with that. But in my case, I think it was much deeper rooted in trauma yeah but like when I was so as a teenager secondary school like you you turn into this really rebellious teenager and but I also wanted to be good like I was a really good reader and I read avidly but like that's not cool so none of my friends knew that I read a lot but I would read a lot okay but when I went to secondary school Mr Pickering was my English teacher and and I think he just knew there was one incident where my best friend um she got her mom to do her homework for her and uh, he said to me in the he said to my my feedback was maybe you should ask for Louise for help. So I went up to him and I was like, uh, her mom did her homework. That's why it was so good. And I think he realized that I wanted to do well. I think that incident might have actually shown him that I cared. Yeah, I, I wasn't just this wild, naughty girl who was hanging out smoking. Mm. And so he actually told me his life story that changed my view of him. So he told me he was a. A minor, he left school at 15, he became a minor and then he went back to university, open university when he was in his 30s. And I was like blown away that actually a teacher was a human first. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you know yourself, like I used to think they were just like authority and I hated them yeah. at that age. And we never imagined their life outside of the classroom. No. Yeah. That he was married and he had daughters and mm. all this stuff. And so like that kind of got me on board. And then like he, he used to say like same thing, like to come and help me do a job at lunchtime but he'd have a bit of soup and he'd give me a bit of soup and then he and then he used to sneak me books so like he used to give me of mice and men and you know and he and I used to love reading out loud in his class like I wouldn't do that in any class because it was too it wasn't cool but in his class I was like me 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 pick me um he just had this way of making you want into work but he 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 did this amazing thing for me when I when I was in 14 and it was parent teacher meeting my parents never went because they were ashamed and they didn't want to face schools, you know. And I remember he knocked my front door and I answered and I thought, oh, shit, I'm in trouble because a teacher comes to the door, you're in trouble. And my mom and I knew my mom and dad would be fuming. And he said, is your dad there? And I called my dad. My dad came to the front door and I listened behind the door because I was like, what did I do? And he said, uh, I miss Sarah Sullivan. It was parent teaching me. I was hoping to see you tonight. My dad kind of mumbled an apology because he was embarrassed. Mm. He wasn't like a shameless character, like this aggressive man. He knew like he was living a shit life and he didn't want to see people like him. And uh, 
Miss Pickering said, I just wanted to tell you, like, that your daughter is amazing. She's really talented and so much potential. And I think you should be ashamed of yourself for not helping her more. Wow, yeah. And my dad apologized and, mm. like, mumbled something about doing better. But, like, behind the door, I, like, grew. Another light was placed in me mm. in that moment. Like, some teacher who didn't have to do what he did went out of his way went to bat for me this little crazy chavy teenager who was delinquent and I was like I know I'm good at that and that's powerful yes yeah but the truth is though it you know and this is the other message that I had for teachers really important messages like sometimes no matter what you do it's never going to, you might not get the outcome that you are hoping for. So like teachers work really hard to keep kids in school and they work really hard for them to do well in their exams. But sometimes something else is driving the child and you, you no matter what you do, they're not going to perform. And like I, within a year I was pregnant and I was le- I'd left school. And like Mr. Pickering could have thought he failed. But like, I don't know if he ever knew that that light he placed in me well guided me way beyond the moments like and at 23 when I was actually in Trinity in an interview for a place in Trinity College what he did then Mm. at age 14 came alive in me because when they asked me about books because I was floundering in this interview for the Trinity Access Program Mm. and when they asked me about books I knew then I was like oh no I'm good at this because Mr Pickering told me I was good at that and he came to my house And he told my dad that I was worth something. And so in that moment, it was like his light, his belief, his everything came to life in me. And I was able to fight and get a place on the program. And I think, you know, for teachers, if they do listen, like sometimes you have to just believe that that moment, that that investment in that moment Mm. is enough Mm. and not expect, always expect kids to do well, but not like be disheartened if it doesn't work. Because he never knew he died. Yeah. He never knew. He never knew. Mm. He was hopefully, an amazing man. Hopefully, on some level, he knew. Yeah. I hope he did. Yeah. Because uh, what a what a great, what a great person. Mm. And it's true, isn't it, what they say, like the impact we have on others is more important than anything else. Mm. Yes. We can have loads of money in the bank or we can achieve, you know, great accolades in our career or whatever it is. But really, it's, it's, it's the impact we have on the people we interact with, whether they're in our close family circle or whether they're somebody like that we interact with for a short period of time, but it stays with the person. It's It's huge. It's always in the moments for me. Like, so in the last, you know, obviously since the books come out, there's so much wonderful stuff has happened, Mm. you know, and you could get lost in that. But like, I always, like, it's the individual investment that matters. Like I got an email yesterday from a student who, she just said, like, I'm, you, you made me want to come to class. And I'm like, they're the mo- that's what matters. Yeah. You know, they're the things that matter. Not this big achievement. This, obviously, I'm a, I, like, I'm a doctor in psychology. Wow. Yeah. Like, I have a PhD from Trinity College. They're, that's amazing. Don't get me wrong. From it's a, 15, a bit of a big deal. It is a big deal. Just a bit. But you can't live your life in that moment all the time. But you can in the positive relationships with people 
Yeah. You can in that. I think they're the things for me that if I focus on them, I'm always feeling like I've achieved something. Like, I mean, I don't walk around go, you know, there's not like a sign on me where it's like, oh, Mary Robinson gave me my PhD from Trinity. Yeah, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah. But like, it doesn't actually fill you up like with esteem. It just is an achievement. Whereas mm. relationships, I think, are important. Yeah. I, the, the photo that I've seen a lot is the photo with your folks, obviously, and mm. you're in the full regalia. Yeah. Is that the day you graduated? That's that's one of my one, three. One, one, yeah. One of my three graduations. Pick which one. Um, what was that like for your folks? Oh, that was... So my dad was this... Yeah, so it was a mixed bag. Okay. So like my mom was really uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable that particular day. So the first graduation was from... So for anyone who doesn't know my story, basically I went from... 15, homeless, had a baby at 16, pregnant, council flat, social welfare, no hope. And then I luckily got into Trinity College when I was 23 through the Trinity Access Programme. Program, yeah. Living in Dublin 1, had loads of support in Dublin 1 and got into Trinity. And so, yeah, and what I learned in Trinity was that I'm actually really intelligent. Yeah. And I never knew. And such a sad fact that I didn't know. I knew I was good at English because Mr. Pickering had told me, but everything else I didn't. I knew I was smart. I'd buy and sell you, but I yeah. didn't know I was You were street smart. smart. Yes. That's what you were aware of. Yeah. I didn't know I was book smart. Yeah. And when and I went that's to, a different animal. It's so Being different. academically minded. Oh, it is. But I, I think they're like, I told this story to Ray Darcy the other day. Like I was chatting to him about something and I said, like my street smart helped me with my book smart. So I remember in one class, I used to statistics and psychology, which I really struggled in at first. I used to be looking at the lecturer and I like, I could tell when his in tone would change around certain topics, right? So I used to be like, oh, because I had to be savvy when I lived on the street. Mm. And I used to be like, oh, he's going to examine us on that. Okay, wow. So right. I used to, like, I had a special pen in his class. So his name is Michael Gormley. He's my actual PhD supervisor. So I had a pe special pen, a green pen. And I used to highlight things. I'd be like, right, he's going to ask that. Uh -oh. He's going to ask that. And then the rest of the class, we'd chat and I'd be like, he's going to ask us about this, this. And they were like, how do you know? I'm like, oh, trust me. And then after the exams... They were like, you're right. Uh, yeah, because I, I had like an instinct for people that came from fear, but also having survival. to be survival. Right. And that wow. helped me. So it really helped me like in terms of my study and in terms of planning. The edge. Yeah, and the edge. But also I think like achievement, you can become addicted to achievement as well. Like I was way over the top in terms of like. I need to do well, I need to do well, I need to do well. So you weren't going to, it was all or nothing? No. It was all, like, and do you feel, because I know obviously, and you touched on it earlier in the chat, like, you know, so your parents were addicts and you yourself then, you know, had had a period where you had to get sober. So yeah. did you feel like there was there was a moment for you, or moments where you could have gone down a similar path in terms of your own addictive Oh, I definitely traits. did. So like there was a period when I lived in Birmingham before I moved back to Dublin where I was, my house was, squalor as well okay electricity not looking after my son properly it's my biggest regrets that I couldn't actually be the mother I wanted to be for them first couple of years now I, I was then and I've raised an amazing man and sure. he's fantastic but like and you're also a kid still a at kid. this point exactly I do have compassion and love for myself then but also like like me he deserved better 
at the end of the day, irrespective of we all deserve to have a loving home and sure. the right parents. So, you know, it's not to not acknowledge that as well. Okay, yeah, but um, yeah, so I did have a very dark five years and then I was so lucky, like in Dublin back then, there was so much investment from the Celtic Tiger in poverty, like it trickles down. So like there was loads of opportunities for, for poor women. So like the first thing that changed my life was actually therapy. So there was a local guy and he used to sit in this little room down in Summerhill and you'd pop in for a cup of tea and have a smoke and a chat with him. And one day I went in, I, I used to chat to him. I said, Joe, like, I'm, what is this? And he'd be like, you need therapy. Like, and I'd be like, I'll do anything. Cause I felt broken a lot. Mm. And so within a few days I was in front of a counselor. Like there was no waiting list. It was free. Yeah. It was so, and so I really, really believe that we need to do better when women ask for help, particularly women like me, we need to give it them now because it changes everything. Like, and so, yeah, there was a really strong, um, there was a definite period of like being broken too and then actually finding my own way out of the darkness. And that was through the therapy, I through suppose. The, the therapy was the most important thing. Like education came second, therapy came first. Yeah. Like personal and commitment to therapy. Like if we talk about anything that I did, like... I went, I kept going back to the therapy. Yeah, even so though it was hard. I, even though it was hard. That was the biggest thing that I did was mm. I kept committed to that. And I kept committed to myself Doing in that. Work. Like that was the bit rather than the, the hard work and education and all that stuff, that which is great. But actually going back to therapy over and over again was really important. And like back to the graduation, like yeah. my mom was so, so she'd actually just relapsed just before horribly for me as an adult then in my own journey, while I was like, you know, escaping and moving on, I couldn't because I was so embedded still in my family. Yeah. And so like my mom, like often a lot of my memories of the joyful periods are marred by relapses and car crashes. And my mom had a liver transplant and she got so this particular day when I graduated, my mom had just relapsed and then she was back from a relapse and she was terrified being in Trinity. She just felt completely like she didn't belong there. Mm. She didn't belong there, to be honest, like because it's not made for people like my mom. And she just felt, whereas my dad was like this bravado man, like he'd take on his, like he'd put on a crombie and he'd be like. Okay, act apart. Oh, yeah, the Gresham. Like, the Gre yeah. yes, he yeah, grew yeah. up in Clontarf. Like he had all of the okay. patter at the end of the day. So he was like lording it. it. Yeah. And my mom was like hiding in the corner. And there's oh. me like looking at them terrified okay because no one knew none of my none of my you know my students knew any of my background because i didn't really want to tell them okay yeah so like it was really really weird and then dave was there were you like, able to be present and enjoy the moment or were you just constantly worried about them no i was worried about them yeah i was okay. worried about them and then but dave was there so i i had a baby in second year like I, yeah so let's talk about him because yeah. obviously a huge part of your life yeah you meet him yeah and then you you know you have two other boys in the mix yes. later on yeah so David's your husband, David. Yeah, Dave's my husband. Yeah, so like that's the biggest, I think the, the, the most, the best achievement of my whole life is having learned to love and be loved. Having to met, I feel emotional saying that, but like I didn't think that I was lovable and that anybody would ever love me. And that was really from my childhood. Like there was this deep feeling that was something wrong with me and that I wasn't ever going to be able to, to connect with another human being. And for a long time, I couldn't because of the trauma and the things that I was carrying. After being in therapy, I just met this wonderful man, like who 
is on a journey of recovery as well. Like I met him through recovery, but Dave is just this, you know, he, he's just this really committed, like he, we just have the same value. Like we wanted to have a lovely family and we wanted, like, we don't drink and we don't party. We talk a lot. Now I talk, I talk a lot more than him <laughs> and he's really handsome as well. Oh. But like we have, you know, we regularly decide to keep loving each other. Mm. And like, for me, that's my success. Yeah. And so I met him when I was just at the end of first year and got pregnant pretty quickly and had Sean then in second year and continued on, never took a break. But Dave has just turned, just turned in. So like at the... Yeah, like never took a break in the sense that I, 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 when I, when I read this. So like, okay, so you gave birth and then yes. like... <laughs> Tell us what okay, happened. Okay, so. so like this is, I, I don't recommend this for other women. This is a, this is a bad thing. Yeah, this right? is not maternity leave. No, people. so, but no one ever told me to take maternity leave, to yeah. be honest. So I had Sean on February the 22nd. Mm-hmm. Now I had, and I, and I did my exams in the May. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now Sean was like the easiest baby ever. If it had been Tyke, sorry Tyke, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't have been able to do that because Tyke was a different kettle of fish. Sean slept a lot. He drank a lot of milk, slept a lot and he was very easy. There was one actually day, so I'll never forget Amy, one particular day we had an exam and it, the time was changed and I had Sean and I had him minded for the two hours of the exam and then it got changed really last minute. And Amy Brogan, thank you, Amy, she actually talk Sean for the two hours that I did my exam but like I know this isn't a good thing like at from this is a trauma thing okay like not knowing your limits right yeah just keeping going just keeping going and not listening to my body at times has been a a journey and it's still a journey that I'm on so that was a form of addiction Addiction, yeah but also I was like I just don't want to I don't want to put this off. Like this is, I, I loved college. Mm. Like, and, and because you were good at it. I was good at it. But people used to piss them out. Like I was like, I was cleaning toilets like the year before yeah. in, in, in Connolly Connelly. Station. And so it was deadly. So I didn't want it to end. Mm. But like the, so the graduation piece, like grad, I got a first, by the way, overall. And, but Dave, so the graduation was like, my mom was there. But I remember, and Sean was there, my middle son and Dave. And I remember the two of them sides of my family, like my future and my past standing side by side. And so I could choose to look at the love because he was so full of love, Dave, even though he's he Trinity was never in his future or, or whatever. Like he was just full of love and admiration. Yeah. So at the graduation, while I was conscious of my mom, I could just see him. And the future with him. And it was gorgeous. And I remember the woman who ran the access program, she kind of sidled up to him and she's like, you better look after her because she hadn't met him before. Because all the tap come, they all come when you when you graduate, yeah. the Trinity Access program people. And she sidled up to Dave and he didn't know who she was. And he was like, who the hell is she? And I was like, don't mess with her. She's minding me. And he was, she was like, he said, she just warned me that I better not let you down. Mm. And, uh, but yeah, he's, he, it's been a wonderful journey with him and being a mother in a different way. And, you know, just, just being present with my children just makes it life so much better, so much easier. Yeah. Like I've learned that like stability and commitment and consistency is actually sometimes the solution to, anxiety for me or like insecurity it's like having a safe home mm. getting the shopping having a you know making a dinner that please don't think that I'm like not a feminist I am a feminist he makes the dinner more than me but like all them things are like actually the things that ground me sure yeah mm. and, and you know what you know 
even if you came from an air quotes normal background, yeah. they're the things that matter, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. But we live in a world they tell us so much different. Mm. Like the world tells us yeah. that like, you know, a career or how you look or all these things are like the mark of success. But like generally, I think like like we sit down most evenings together, the family, the four of us. And have dinner together, like yeah. every most evenings. And sometimes, like, I don't have any interest in what they're talking about because it's Man United most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the fact that we sit and together and, you know, there's love there and yeah. it's, it's, that's the, that's happiness. And that's life. a serious achievement, especially when the boys are at the age they are, like mm. 15 and 18. They're usually at the age where they're like, you know, good luck to this. No, now. don't care me, don't get me wrong. I'm forcing them down yeah. to the table. <laughs> they're not whistling in. We're not the Waltons. <laughs> they're like, like oh, hi, ma'am. How are you? No, it's not. They that. know it's important to you. They, they do, but they are, like they they love the connection too. Yeah, like great. we do have a good um, a good old bond in the house. So not alone are your mother of of three. You also have a grandson. A grandson. Oh my god, the light of my life. How old is he now? He's he's nineteen months. He's nineteen months, but he's. Yeah, it's it's funny because you have to be careful what you say when you're the granny because you're like, oh, um, I like it's a love like you've never known, but that doesn't mean I don't love my I children. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, but I see it, I see it with you know, with, yeah, as in we have two kids and we're blessed that 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 those two kids have their grandparents on both sides, yes. which is really quite something. Yeah, and we see the adoration that yeah. both sets of grandparents have for those kids. Yes, it's amazing. Well, we're we're the like me and Dave compete to spend time. <laughs> with him like honestly and like if Dave's with him he'll send, me a, he'll send me a photo <laughs> I'm here <laughs> sometimes like da- John and Dave will have a coffee and he'll bring him along and John Dave will send me a photo <laughs> I got my hug in today <laughs> so like it's definitely uh, it's definitely one of the, and, and like I mean John's girl and their family they're beautiful people mm. like so like from an, you know, from this reflective piece when he told me he was pregnant, like they're together 15 years, like they're a long time together, but I couldn't ask for an, a, a better person for mm-hmm. him to be in love with and for them to have a family. They're just so wonderful. So it's like, not only have we healed and have things changed, but like the life of John and his, his future family are also changed. And it's just wonderful to be able to have that ability yeah. to look at it like that. But he's just the best. I think he's the best child in the world. Mm. Like, and I and I would argue anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue with anybody over that. So yeah. he's amazing. Yeah, he's really amazing. Writing the book was obviously um, a huge experience for you on a personal level, and then it has that domino effect of having a positive impact on those who read it. Those who just feel inspired, very moved by what you're saying and what you've gone on to do, but also those who perhaps have, are, are coming from a perspective of lack as well. Mm. What would your last words be to maybe somebody who felt uh, drawn to this conversation mm. to hear you speak, who maybe is struggling, who is in a. And I don't necessarily mean coming from poverty alone, while that obviously is an aspect, but somebody who feels that there's more to life than what they're currently experiencing. Mm. I, I often say to people like, it's not your fault. Like I walked around for a long time thinking it was my fault that I wasn't doing the good things or hadn't achieved. The privilege of education showed me that a lot of things are predetermined for us and society and what we experience in the world actually really 
influences who we are and what we become. Like the things that helped me is asking for help. Like literally, you know, and, and that can be in all different guises. If it's emailing me or it's popping into, you know, a counsellor or whatever it is. I think sometimes we can't change our life on our own and it's good to know that it's not your fault and maybe to just reach out mm-hmm. in whatever guise it might be if you do want to change your life. And um, it hasn't always been easy for me. Like it's easier now for me to tell the story, but there were times where it was very difficult and like getting help was the one thing that actually, you know, getting help from other people was the thing that moved me along. But I do really believe that, especially people who have come from adversity, have had trauma or live in areas or in places where there's lack of opportunities. A lot of that has nothing to do with them. And I only learned that later on, it wasn't really my fault. And I walked around a lot of the time thinking it was because I didn't do the right thing. I didn't work hard enough or I didn't choose the right things. And now I understand actually there's so much more that mm. contributes to that. And um, so, yeah. And, and I always think like there's always another day. There's always another day to try and do whatever it is that you're you wanted to do or you think you might want to do. What's been wonderful is the amount of women that have emailed me and said, I'm actually going to do that course. Mm. I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to try. I'm actually going to do that course, you know? And that's like, oh yeah, just try it. You know, um, sometimes failure isn't a bad thing either. You know, like we often nowadays, like you can't fail. Like, like I failed a lot and like, like I think it's okay to just not, not be great at everything. And sometimes not fail and and sometimes fail and then try again. Um, I don't have all the answers. I do know though that help, asking people for help was probably one of the most important stepping stones for me to actually get to where I am today, not trying to do it on my own, not blaming myself and then asking for help. Yeah. Katrina, it's been really amazing to meet you. Yeah, you and too. And talk to you. Um, you're just an incredible human being and uh, you're really cool and funny and I am funny yeah I know a lot of this chat is <laughs> Dave doesn't think very I'm funny <laughs> I can tell I'd say you're a pure messer yeah I am I am a bit of a messer <laughs> um yeah, I mean, what you've done as well academically is it's it makes me as somebody who doesn't have an academic, yeah. um, you know, background. It feels not insecure, but I'm just in awe of you. I yeah. think it's it's amazing. But I, I love how you wear it so lightly also. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're not sitting here, you're owning it, but you're not boastful and you're yeah. not um, you're extremely relatable, which is very powerful. But uh I do Thank both you. sometimes. Well, you, you, sh- you, can, you need no, to be able to own it. When someone tries to put me down, okay. I will actually. Does then, that happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. Men do it. So I will get emails from men um, recommending what I should read or how I should speak properly. And in their moments, I will then actually list my achievements and say, I'm a best-selling author. I'm a PhD from Trinity. I published in Nature. I have the biggest grant in academic history for widening participation. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so don't fuck with me is basically what I say I, I'm modest until you fuck with me <laughs> what a way to end the conversation <laughs> thank you oh, it's like mic drop yes <laughs> Katrina's book is called Poor and it is incredible thank you so much as always for listening to Ready To Be Real
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.